Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Howdy, howdy. I'm Steve Abramowitz, and this is the Mill Creek View podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, very special guest, Jack Johnson. Welcome to our People in News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Senate Majority Leader Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson is a member of the Tennessee State Senate, representing District 27, right here, which includes most of Williamson County. He assumed office in November 8, 2022. Johnson ran for re-election to the Tennessee State Senate to represent District 27 and won in the general election on November 8, 2022. Johnson began serving as state Senate Majority Leader in 2018. His current term ends on November 3rd, 2026. For 23-24, Johnson was assigned to the following committees, Commerce and Labor Committee, Calendar Committee Vice Chair, and Finance, Ways, and Means Committee. Jack and his wife, Deanna, the Circuit Court Judge for the 21st Judicial District, are raising their three children in Franklin. Jack and Deanna met over 30 years ago at a Young Republican function, sharing the same conservative values and the same dream of a future filled with faith and family. When the day's work is done, Jack enjoys spending time with his family and playing guitar. He was also episode number 70 of the MCV and now back for number 166. So, Senator, how are you today? Where are you? I'm doing great, uh, Steve. Thanks for having me back on, and congratulations. How many episodes? 166? That's You make 166 in about 35 minutes, yep. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> congratulations. Well, I'm excited to be joining you. I'm, I'm just across the state line in beautiful Olive Branch, Mississippi. I just flew into the airport here, and I'm attending an event here in a little while up in uh, Shelby County, and uh, folks here at Olive Branch Airport were nice enough to let me use their conference room and their Wi-Fi here so I could join you for your podcast. Well, we appreciate it for making the time. Thank you so much. Um, uh, so, Senator, I hear you like to play some guitar. Your <laughs> bandmate is a Franklin PD sergeant. So a senator and a cop can't be outlaws. Do you make Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash type outlaw country music or something more politically correct? No, we love the outlaw stuff. We love the the Waylon and the Merle and uh, uh, Johnny Cash and all that all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of my passions. It's something I do for fun. I don't. I, I tell people I don't golf. I don't hunt. I don't fish. Don't really care that much about sports unless it's my kids. Although I've gotten into the balls here lately, but uh, but when I do have a little bit of free time, which is not often, I like to try to bang on a Telecaster. I'm not very good at it, but I, I try to make some noise on one. Very nice. I have a Telecaster myself and a Stratocaster. Um, and you and everybody else, it seems. Uh, did That's you see right. where, where thing, exactly. yeah, from 2014 to 2022, statewide employment in film and video production grew 82%, ranking Tennessee as number five among all states in the nation for jobs in the entertainment production industry. How can people see you uh, perform live? Well, uh, you know, we, we play, um, fun we play for charity events and obviously do some political things and we do have one standing uh monthly engagement at uh, fox and lock out in leapers fork formerly uh puckets mm -hmm. and uh we play uh usually it's a sunday afternoon in fact we'll be there this this coming sunday um at uh, about 12 30 we we play and just play for a couple of hours and we enjoy it because it's family friendly people can bring their kids and come by after church and and enjoy beautiful downtown Leapers Fork. And so we do that about once a month and then, and just try to play for good causes and charitable things and things like that. And what's your partner's name? Uh, Charlie Richards. So Charlie Richards, yeah. Charlie and I uh, met together, uh, we met uh, at college back uh, about 34 years ago, I guess, in, in San Marcos, Texas, and, and uh, formed a band together. And then he and I moved to Nashville in 1991. And, um, and here we are all those many years later. And as you said, he's actually now a Lieutenant with the Franklin police department. Um, and, uh, of course I serve in the Senate, but we're great friends and, and just share a passion for good old country music. Very nice. You need a distraction with all that stress up there at uh, Cordell <laughs> Hall. Um, and in 2022, not long ago, incentivized projects made a total of $124.8 million of impact with 1,025 new jobs and 66.4 million in new incomes. The projects touched every corner of the state with production taking place in 39 out of the 95 counties. So you're in the right place at the right time. Um, Jack was first elected to the Tennessee State Senate in 2006. Your website says 
Since his first day in office, he has proudly represented Tennesseans' conservative values, proud to cast his first vote in the Senate for the first Republican lieutenant governor in 140 years. What are your priorities in the current session to keep Tennessee conservative, sir? Well, Steve, as you know, uh, just for historical perspective, when I cast that vote, my very first day in, in office, my very first day on the Senate floor, the very first vote I ever cast was for my friend Ron Ramsey. Uh, prior to that, for 34 years, I believe, we had had a Democratic Speaker of the Senate. Democrats had controlled the state Senate. At that time, they still controlled the state House, and we had a Democratic governor. So it was a, a very historical moment when we elected Ron Ramsey, as, as you said, accurately, the first Republican Speaker of the Senate. And of course, in Tennessee, the Speaker of the Senate is also the Lieutenant Governor. Um, he was the first Republican to hold that office in 140 years. Uh, a lot of folks who are new to Tennessee don't understand that historical context that Republicans did not fully control this state until January of 2011. So literally, <laughs> it's been about 12 years. And that was with the election of Bill Haslam as governor. Uh, he succeeded uh, Democrat Phil Bredesen. And, and it was also at that time that we got a, a solid ma Republican majority in the House. So when you look at what we've accomplished in just 12 short years, just over a decade, uh, Tennessee is now the lowest tax state in the nation. We're the least indebted state in the nation. Our pension plan is fully funded. Uh, we're the best fiscally managed state in the nation. And, and there are a number of outside entities, objective entities, nonpartisan entities that have given us that distinction. So when I look ahead to the coming fiscal year, I always start with the budget. That's the most important thing we do is decide how to spend your tax dollars. How many of your tax dollars do we need to run government? And as I already said, we're, we're the most efficient state in the nation. So we want to keep it that way. I will say, however, Steve, as we look ahead to the next fiscal year, which will be the 24-25 fiscal year budget, we are beginning to see some headwinds. Uh, as strong as our economy is in Tennessee, we have the fastest small business job growth in the nation, lowest unemployment in recorded history. We're back to pre-pandemic uh, record low unemployment rates. Despite all of that good news, we are beginning to feel the effects of the disastrous Biden economy or Bidenomics, whatever you want to call it. Inflation. And inflation, exactly. Inflation, higher interest rates. And that's beginning to have a uh, take a toll on on our revenues and our economy. We will weather that storm. We're very well positioned to weather that storm, but uh, but we are approaching this coming budget cycle with some degree of, of trepidation. So obviously, we will keep Tennessee on the right fiscal path. A lot of talk. Uh, I'm sure you've seen in the news and your your viewers and listeners have about school choice. I'm very proud to be sponsoring the Governor's School Choice Universal uh, Education Freedom Scholarship Program for all kids in Tennessee. Uh, I'm carrying that with my good friend and the chairman of the Education Committee, John Lundberg. Uh, he will be my co-sponsor on that legislation. He's from Bristol, Tennessee. And so we are going to join, I think we're up to about nine or 10 other states now, to uh, pass Universal School Choice in the state of Tennessee. And that's that's big. We have school choice now on a limited basis in Davidson, Shelby, and Hamilton counties, but it's time to make that available to every family in Tennessee. Awesome. I want to get into that in a second, but um, you are also in banking. You have a day job. You're not just a January through April senator, um, so a day job, so to speak. Uh, do you think, what do you think of this trend? There are 11 states that accept gold and silver as legal tender, and Tennessee is one of them. Do you think treating gold and silver as a legal tender is a conservative value? I, I do. I do. And, and the, you know, that one aspect of that, Steve, is that um, I want Tennessee to be as independent as possible. We can't completely extricate ourselves from, say, the Federal Reserve, uh, obviously the, the U.S. dollar currency, and that's what most of us use and will continue to use. But I want Tennessee to be a state that's recognized for uh, those who wish to invest in or even use as currency uh, precious metals. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of new technology and I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, there's a lot of new technology that will allow you to actually conduct transaction utilizing precious metals that can be on deposit or in a, in a repository. Um, my good friend, Senator Frank Nicely, uh, is, a, is, is, is very passionate about this and very knowledgeable about it. And I know he plans to bring some legislation in this upcoming session. But uh, not only do people, and I'm not giving investment advice here, but as you know, many people do choose to keep precious metals as part of their investment portfolio. Uh, and, and not only should you be able to do that and, and actually have physical gold, silver, whatever you choose to hold, there are a myriad of ways to invest in those those assets, but uh, 
Texas, I believe, has a repository that, that mm -hmm. can be utilized. And I think Senator Nicely actually visited that repository and he was telling me about it. And so we're going to be looking at some of the same things for Tennessee. Very cool. All right. So per Tennessee state rules, the Finance, Ways and Means Committee, your committee, appointed by the longest serving member, 40 years, wow, Senator and Speaker of the Senate, Lieutenant Governor Randy McDowell, you mentioned, um, is responsible for all measures related to taxes and the raising of revenue, all measures relating to bonds and the bonding of revenue, all measures relating to the issuance, payment, or retirement of bonds, all measures related to the evidences of indebtedness, all measures dealing with the appropriations of state funds, the general appropriations bill, the deposit of public monies, congressional relations and assessments, and da, 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 collection of property taxes. Franklin, where I live, and you too, operates on a 50% plus sales tax. Um, do you think charter schools, which you mentioned you're leading, will lead to property tax increases like the surrounding counties to Williamson have done, some like 50% or more? And do you like Lee's Charter School Initiative as is? I haven't seen the bill myself, but do you like what you are hearing as is? And would you be in favor of a California Prop 13 style tax cap? It was a boon for the real estate market for my life and, and the years I lived there. They just repealed it. So all those homeowners would love to flee and start the clock all over again on cap gains here in Tennessee, I bet, if they knew home taxes were stable. Sure. So a couple of things um, relative to, to charter schools. And I want to make sure we draw a distinction between charter schools, which we have in Tennessee, which are very important, Public and then care. the Education Freedom Scholarship Program, which would, would allow families to, to put their kids into private schools or participate in homeschool cooperatives and things of, of that nature. I do not see that or expansion of those types of programs leading to property tax increases. In fact, I can argue and make a point that for local governments, particularly counties, we have 95 county school systems across the state, and we have a few special school districts is how they're, they're termed in our code, and we have some city school systems as well. There's roughly 140 uh, school systems across the state of Tennessee. The vast majority of those are county school systems, and so they are partly funded by the counties, And but the majority of the money on average across the state, roughly two-thirds of every dollar to educate a child comes from state, state government, state funds. That does vary in Williamson County because we have a very large or very high property tax base. Our homes are worth a lot. Uh, Williams County is a, an affluent county. We receive less proportionately than, than say, a, a, a more uh, distressed county would, say, a, a, a Perry County or a Hancock County. Having said that, though, no, utilization of charter schools or uh, implementation of a school choice program universally across the state should have no impact on, on property taxes. Now, when it comes to property tax caps, we are having conversations about that. And as you, you mentioned, there are a couple of examples. Um, Nashville, for one, had a, an enormous property tax increase all in one particular year. And that's really, that's problematic for a number of reasons, right? Because it, it makes homeownership so much more expensive. Uh, say you have a young couple or a retired couple but say you have a young couple, they save up their money and they buy that first home and they budget for insurance and property taxes and their house payment, and whatever the case might be. And then all of a sudden the local government goes in and raises property taxes by an enormous amount. And that's, that's problematic. Now I will say as well, though, that the vast majority of our counties out there do a, do a good job. And, and uh, on a relative basis, when you look, compare us to, say, the state of Texas and, and Florida and some other even Republican-controlled states, we have among the lowest property taxes uh, in the nation. Um, but local governments in, in say, a, a metropolitan area like Nashville, they do have authority to raise their taxes uh, without restriction. And so, yes, I think that that's going to be a topic of conversation coming up. Yeah, when I lived through the uh, boom in the suburbs of Seattle for the Microsoft tech days, I saw people tax right out of their inherited homes yeah. because they couldn't afford it anymore. They were on the edge as it was, but that's it. And that's very sad. Um, some say on the left, it'll go, the voucher program now, will go to wealthy parents for tax breaks on private schools and not help poor kids. Do you think that's the way it'll happen? And how quickly will enough poor areas get a charter school to send their kids to since there aren't many operating today, you know, a whole generation has cycled out K through 12 already waiting for this opportunity. Mississippi, where you are, or just where, has done a great job with vouchers, for example. Where, where do you think we're going to fall into that? 
Well, uh, the first part of your question relative to it being a tax break for the well, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't I don't understand the logic of, of that argument. If you're going to have truly a universal school choice program, which is where we ultimately want to get. And I'm not sure we can get there all in one year, but we want to start a trajectory of getting to true universal school choice. And what you're doing there, Steve, is you're kind of deconstructing this notion that that every child should go to the public school down the street. The vast majority of kids in Tennessee do that now and will continue to do that. All three of my kids attended Williams County Public Schools and they got a great education. We had a wonderful experience and most kids go to uh, public schools now and will continue to do that. But if you if you believe in true school choice, then you believe in empowering parents and parents should ultimately be the ones to decide what the best education alternative for their child is. That might be a school that tailors, uh, uh, you know, some children have unique learning needs. They might be gifted or they might be challenged in some way. And there are schools who cater to those, those particular kids who have unique learning needs. It could be because of faith. It could be a family that, that, that having their, their child in a Christian school or a Jewish school uh, that that it be important that that faith and be intertwined with their academic education is something that's important to that parent. And we have an obligation as a state to make sure that every child has an opportunity to get a, a free public education. We're going to have that. We're going to have great public schools. Every kid in Tennessee is going to have an opportunity to attend a public school. But that parent should also be able to utilize the money that's appropriated by the state and take that as a scholarship a freedom, we're calling them education freedom scholarships, and, and put their child in a, in a school that they think is a better option for the parents. I, I think that the, the notion that supporting school choice is somehow an attack on, on public education, I, I don't agree with that at all. I, I gave you the history, Republicans have controlled the state for just over 12 years. In that time, we've done more to support public education than Democrats did in the 30 years prior to that. Yeah, we've that's always appropriated case, yeah. more money. We've we've uh, implemented accountability measures. We've given teachers the biggest raises that they've ever received. These are public school teachers. So we believe in public education, and we're going to continue to do everything we can to make our public schools as good as they can be. But parents should still have an option to pick an alternative learning environment for their child if they deem it appropriate. Mm -hmm. And how do you pick and choose from, I've, I've been told an average of 100 1,500 bills each session, which on average, a thousand end up actually getting passed. Why so many in such a great state that doesn't really need so much change, you know, conserve what we already have, not progress with new laws. How, sure. how, how do you pick and choose what we're actually going to pass? Well, believe it or not, the system works pretty well. And, and you're right. You could have as many as 2000 bills that get introduced. Now, let me qualify that and say, sometimes multiple members may file the same version of a particular bill. Now, and they're not all going to be acted upon. They'll decide and they'll pick one and, and, and pursue that. We file a lot of what we refer to as caption bills because we do have a bill filing deadline. And sometimes you may think you want to pursue legislation on a particular subject matter. So you just file a placeholder that, that could accommodate a mandatory language later on in session if you need to. So that results in, in some extra bills being filed. But I always remind people of this, to remove something from the code, like some kind of uh, outdated or antiquated um, regulatory requirement or, you know, something like it takes a bill to, to remove something from the code as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those bills are to streamline things, to make things more efficient, to uh, do away. I remember in my time in the, in the Senate, you think about everything that's happened with social media, the Internet, email. We've, we've passed legislation to authorize and make legal uh, certain kinds of business transactions that can be done uh, online. How many times do you do something using DocuSign uh, or, you know, something? So, you know, sometimes technology warrants that you have to have legislation. So I know it sounds like a lot of bills and actually it's less than than a thousand. I, I, on, on average, you might see a couple of 1,500 to 2,000 bills filed, but by the time they get referred to committee and discussions are had, really, you're probably looking, usually I'd say around four or 500 bills that make it to the floor for consideration. And many of them are innocuous. They're very simple. We're not like Washington where we file these thousand page omnibus bills. 
our bills by constitution have to deal with one subject matter and uh, most bills are one or two pages long. So we're not doing these big omnibus bills. So if you want to do 10 little things and they're in different parts of the code, you got to have 10 different bills for it. So, but they all get referred to committee and a lot of those get, get uh, uh, we call it sent to the general subcommittee because that's where bills go when they, they're decided they're not necessary or maybe there's not support there from the members, but, but it's, it's, it's a good process. And every member, be it house or Senate, uh, has that authority constitutionally to file bills that they deem necessary. You got 132 members, 33 senators, 99 House members. There's a lot of ideas out there about how to make Tennessee better. And so they, those bills get filed and then they get considered and, and a few end up passing. Okay. Um, so I personally think when I was doing my shopping, where to, where to go with me and my family, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Florida, plus Utah, do more things right from this conservative point of view we're talking about than most states. You know, that's five out of 50, sometimes Montana and Wyoming. So very few ultimately, but not 25 or half the country. So prior to the Florida Surgeon General appointment, Dr. Joseph A. Lapado, who's a Harvard trained MD, PhD, and arguably one of the top experts on COVID-19 in the world, he just called for a complete halt on Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines. Do you think Tennessee should do that too? Well, I think we'll 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 look at it. You know, I was proud to lead the effort back in 2021 to protect Tennesseans from mandatory uh, vaccines. If you recall, the Biden administration was trying via executive order, not even with congressional authorization, but just through executive order was trying to force people to get vaccinated as a condition of their employment or if they were doing federal contracting and all these different things. And so I was proud to lead the effort in, in Tennessee with my colleagues, but I was the sponsor of the legislation in the Senate to protect Tennesseans from uh, the vaccine, unconstitutional vaccine mandates that were coming down from the, from the Biden administration. Um, again, we convene on Tuesday. I, I read literally just earlier today about what the Florida Surgeon General uh, uh, had done. And so I think that's going to generate a number of conversations in the, in the General Assembly. Good. Um, emergency powers. My old state government kept them for a thousand days, yeah. well past any county having a single case of COVID. So it was abuse. Should Tennessee emergency powers be limited so the next governor can't abuse them? In, you know, yeah. some hypothetical scenario. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great question, and it is something that we uh, have looked at and will continue to look at right now. Um, as it is right now, a governor can declare a state of emergency and it can last into, into perpetuity. It can go, there's no amount of time. And, and under a state of emergency, um, the governor has very broad uh, authority. Uh, now, I, I will say that uh, uh, working with Governor Lee during that state of emergency, uh, he bent over backwards to confer and collaborate with members of the General Assembly. We had, I can't tell you how many conference calls and conversations with leadership. We would talk with our membership uh, about things that he was doing under that declaration of emergency. So I do not believe that Governor Lee abused it. Uh, but you do have to think who the next governor might be or the next governor after that or the governor on, on down the line. And so I do support, you know, the, the reason that was put into, into place is going back from, you know, when the, the Constitution we're, we're currently uh, under was was ratified, you know, they they were still traveling to the Capitol by horse and buggy. Um, it was, you know, to come into session was a was a big, big deal. You had people traveling hundreds of miles and and maybe they might be able to take a train, but many couldn't even do that. And so coming to Nashville for a legislative session was a big deal. That's not the case anymore. And so I do think it's reasonable to set a, a limitation on the length of time that a state of emergency can be declared without uh, having the General Assembly coming into session. Um, how long that is, I, you know, 60 days, 90 days, I, I, you know, we can, we can talk about the amount of time. But I do think that it's important to get, get the legislature involved. And again, I want to be very clear that I, I, I think Governor Lee, while we did not come, we did come into session in, in October of 21, but, uh, but Governor Lee was very engaged with the legislature um, and talking with leadership and members across the state as he was, uh, when he would issue an executive order. 
Yeah, no question. I would have rather have suffered through it here than where I was, where Steve is sitting right now in the dark, I might add. Um, uh, you know, and Thomas Jefferson said Tennessee's constitution was the best of them all for its republicanism. But when it came to a pandemic or a scare or an emergency for public health, not so much. Um, how about banning all public and private mask and vaccine mandates in any setting under any circumstances? You know, this is no longer 2022 when we were merely playing defense. Now we have reams of data and studies showing these policies are downright harmful, much less ineffective. Disability law downright mandates affirmative accommodations for people with health issues, yet somehow we're to believe hospitals can force patients to wear something hazardous. Um, the bill must, of course, be backed by a stiff fine for any violator. And in the case of anyone caught forcing school children to wear a mask, there must be prison time. Any interest in any of that? Well, again, we passed the, uh, and I sponsored the, the legislation to put very strict parameters in place. Um, I think we could perhaps look at going farther uh, relative to any type of a mass mandate issued by government or by schools. Um, we, uh, we did pass that, that bill and it is the, the law of the state right now. And if, if the law that I passed had been in place uh, during the height of COVID, um, I, I think it ended up being that uh, during that entire period of time, there might've been about a week to where the metrics would have risen to a point to where a mass mandate would have been, would have been allowed. And people said, well, why not just not do it at all? And, um, and you, you ran into some constitutional issues there. And I can't remember all of that in detail now off the top of my head, but, uh, we learned a lot from, from the pandemic and, and, and from what government can be capable of. And while I do think that Tennessee, we certainly made mistakes, let me be very clear. It, were that to happen again, something like what happened in, in March of 2020 and in the uh, months after, we would do it far different. We wouldn't shut our economy down. And even though that was very limited in Tennessee and not like Florida, or not Florida, uh, Florida under Governor DeSantis did a great job as well. I meant to say California, New York, Illinois, some of these other states uh, that literally drove people completely out of business. We would certainly do things a, a lot different. So I'm, I'm glad that it opened the eyes of, of a lot of people relative to being very suspicious of your, of your government. And, and I'm in government right now, and but I'm more a private citizen than I am an elected official. Um, and um, the lessons that we learned, I think, I hope will reverberate for generations to come. Yeah, and, and the time to strike is now when it's not a pandemic as opposed to an emergency. Right. Um, is there a particular bill or issue out of the 1500 or you say 400 that you'll get that you think are absolute must pass emergency legislation for this year? Well, actually, the, the only bill that we have to pass by the Constitution is the budget. And uh, in, in theory, we could convene, pass a budget for the coming fiscal year and go home. Uh, obviously, there are other important matters that need to be uh, addressed. And that's that's why we go through this legislative process. For me, the, the number one priority is the governor's education freedom scholarship bill. Um, as majority leader, I sponsor the governor's legislation, including the budget. And so obviously that bill is, is important to me. It's very important to the governor. Uh, I will also say that um, we have a crime problem um, in uh, specifically in Memphis in Shelby County. And there's been a lot of news about that. Uh, I'm sure that, sadly the numbers have probably gone up, but as of just probably a couple of weeks ago, they had had 363 homicides in Memphis. And, capital of the country. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's that's more than one a day. And get this, it's more than the city of New York. And the, the greater Memphis area, Shelby County is roughly a million people. New York is eight and a half, I think, roughly million people. So more than eight times the population and yet um, had fewer homicides than the city of Memphis. We've we've got a judicial system down there that's not working. Uh, we have an individual that was charged with first degree murder that was released by a judicial magistrate on their own recognizance, no bail. No, no accountability. Um, we have a DA that is dismissing cases that should be prosecuted. Um, so you're going to see some talk about that. We don't rank. I can. I've done a lot of bragging on Tennessee, and there's a lot we can be proud of. One of the things we shouldn't be proud of, and I'm not proud of, is that we're, you know, generally in the top ten in terms of violent crime. But if you take Memphis out and adjust otherwise for population and everything else, we drop to about middle of the pack, about 25 out of 50. And so it's so much of it is coming out of Memphis and Shelby County. And I hate that because Memphis is an amazing city. It's there's so much 
good there, good people, good food, good culture. Uh, it's a river town. I enjoy Memphis. I enjoy being in Memphis. Um, and yet they're struggling. They're, they are losing population um, uh, where the rest of the state is, is growing. Certainly in Middle Tennessee, our population is exploding. But in Shelby County, they're losing population, and it is due in large part to crime. So uh, you asked for one bill. I mean, it's, that's hard to answer. If I have to say one, it's got to be the budget, because that's what the Constitution says we have to do. Um, but setting that aside, obviously, the school choice uh, bill uh, from the governor, and then I think addressing uh, crime as well as human trafficking, which somewhat dovetails into the greater discussion about crime. We're going to see legislation uh, to empower our Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, our Department of Safety, the, the, the Attorney General of the state to uh, give them additional resources and additional power to go after human trafficking and fight broader crime in general. Okay. I look forward to that. I would like to go visit Graceland and not be afraid for my life. So it'd be good. Amazing. I've been there several times. It's I'm, a sure, good I'm sure you have. Um, the special session about guns didn't seem to be the PR coup Governor Lee was going for. What did you learn in that whole process of regular session falling into chaos, special session, not really delivering on what was expected to today to now a new session, obviously have to look back at the pieces and, and put something out there. What do you think about that whole gun issue in Tennessee? Well, the answer to, uh, to crime is not to impede upon the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. And yet many think that it is. Many people think the answer to um, solving the crime problem is to restrict the rights of law-abiding citizens to exercise their, their Second Amendment rights and to own, possess, purchase firearms. I just don't see it that way. It's an age-old gun control argument that's been around for many, many years. And there are some that think that the answer to that is to impede your ability to defend yourself, my ability to defend myself, whether that's through red flag laws or waiting periods or magazine capacity limits. and are banning certain types of weapons. And we're just not going to do that in Tennessee. One, it's ineffective. And two, it's unconstitutional. I, I, just, I, I believe that. And certainly in the wake of the Bruin decision from the Supreme Court, I think that the, that argument is even stronger now when you look at, at the Bruin decision and you read the logic that, that is read into that. So, you know, so that was a big part of the conversation from our special session back in August. And it's okay to have that conversation. But as you said, uh, no red flag law was introduced or even considered. Um, certainly, no, there were some gun control bills that were filed by some Democrats, but they never went anywhere. But we did have some good conversations about some things that are effective. Access to mental health. When you've got people that um, are in, in a, some type of a mental health crisis, uh, such as I, I very much believe that, that the covenant shooter was was we know that she was being treated by a mental health professional. And I'm privy to some of the stuff that was in her writings and her journals. And I don't think any reasonable person can look at some of that stuff and decide anything other than she was mentally unstable and was in desperate need of mental health treatment. So we don't do a good job in Tennessee right now. It's something we did do in, in special session, which is to appropriate additional money for recruitment and retention of mental health professionals. We create a scholarship program for people to enter the mental health profession. You know, Tennessee has more contiguous states than any other state in the nation. So we're competing with other states for not just mental health professionals, but nurses and teachers and law enforcement and these other things. So we have to make sure Tennessee's competitive for those kind of people. The House introduced some bills, uh, some tough on crime bills and some mental health related bills that, as you recall, the Senate didn't feel comfortable advancing some of that legislation in a very short abbreviated special session. But we were very clear. We were happy to reconsider some of these bills uh, when we convene our regular session. And we will do that on Tuesday. So I think many of those bills will be re reintroduced and uh, and be reconsidered. I do expect Democrats and others to continue to file and advocate for gun control, uh, but I don't expect those bills to advance. And fundamentally, I'll restate my position. The answer to solving crime is not to disarm law-abiding citizens and impede on their Second Amendment rights. Yeah, maybe lock some people up for a long time. Um, will we ever know what drugs and who worked with her on therapy and maybe training her with those weapons from that covenant? Should, will we ever get to know? 
As you know, there is pending litigation right now relative to releasing uh, the term manifesto is commonly used. She had um, a number of journals and writings and, and things. There is ongoing litigation um, uh, regarding that. I'm hopeful that at some point uh, some of that will be made public because I think we can learn a lot from it. Uh, I am sympathetic to the covenant families and, and them being re-traumatized, if you will, or having to relive some of that. But I think there's a balance that can be struck there. Uh, some of it might need to be redacted, but I think we can learn uh, from that. We've learned some already because we've, we've learned some things from um, her state of mind and, and what was going on with her. Um, but uh, ultimately, though, I think we're going to have to wait on the litigation to run its course relative to those writings being released mm -hmm. for public dissemination. It's interesting because they'll be more traumatized if it happens again and sure. have to relive it that way than if we can just prevent it by saying maybe this drug is a, a psychoactive or maybe this trainer who decided here's how you use an AR-15 kid who isn't supposed to be around guns. Anyway, not a kid, 20 something years old. But moving on, House Speaker Cameron Sexton called for bipartisanship this week. Uh, it's a pretty word. Do you think the three from Nashville, Memphis, and the one running against Marsha Blackburn will make a fuss again or get in line? Well, I think they have a a tendency to want to make themselves the center of attention at, rather than good policy. And that's what you saw in the last regular <laughs> session. You saw it continue through the special session, uh, the bullhorn trio or whatever you, you wish to call it. And just don't call them the Tennessee three. That's Johnny not, Cash's I band. I don't like that. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's good. That's Tennessee. That's country music trivia there. Um, no. And I, I'm hopeful that, that they, uh, the house and, and I'm, I'm very careful to opine on house matters. I serve in the Senate and we respect each other's chambers and each other's rules. Um, but I, I'm hopeful. And I know that there are many in the house. I'm friends with many, many of those, the, the people over there. Uh, that serve in the house and there's some really really wonderful people there and i'm hopeful that they'll be able to do something with regards to the rules to be able to let people say what they want to say that's 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 part of being elected is is representing your constituents representing your convictions but do it in a manner that is respectful that is not disruptive of the process um and and i'll i'll point you to the senate um we have six democrats in the in the senate and they certainly are never impeded from saying what they want to say, arguing for or against bills, but they do it in a respectful manner. And, and we, as a Republican majority, we respect their right to say their piece, but we don't, it, it doesn't rise to the level of disrupting the proceedings, our ability to conduct the people's business. So I'm hopeful that, uh, that the house will, will be able to, to get that somewhat under control. Okay. I know you have other things going on today, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have a few more questions. I'll try to bang them out real quick before sure. we run out of time. Uh, the Tennessee Republican Party, your party, the supermajority party in Tennessee, what do you make of a mess the Republican Party made, my words mess, not yours, about bona fides and how what was not eligible to run two years ago now can for school board, for example, in Williamson County, with a simple arbitrary change of rules, not a very big tent idea, right? Well, I think we need to be clear about what the rules are. And you're right. There has been some changes and some ambiguity. And um, and I have faith and confidence in our state party chairman and the state executive committee that, that hopefully they can get that ratcheted down. I certainly support that if you want to run on the ballot as a Republican, that you should be a Republican. And, and I have no objection to some type of a, a process to make sure that um, you truly are a Republican. Uh, but those rules need, need, need to be set and, um, and, and they need to be followed. So uh, at the same time, I think someone who wishes to serve in, in public office uh, should, should be able to do so with as minimal uh, impediments to, to their ability to do that as possible. Mm. Uh, Congressman Mark Green, Tennessee, is also chairman of the Homeland Security uh, Committee and wants to impeach Mayorkas for the crisis at the border. I think that, uh, whatever you call it, that process starts this week or next. Um, in Tennessee, the price of fentanyl has dropped from $95 to $28, according to the sheriffs in numerous counties. Uh, that's what happens when our communities are flooded with massive amounts of opioids, Mark Green said. Uh, do you agree it's a crisis even in Tennessee? We're not a border state. And what can we do at the state level to keep illegals out? It cost us a billion dollars last year to house and educate illegals, $350 each per Tennessee household. 
that's not very fair to citizen uh, taxpayers, is it? No, it's not. And certainly fentanyl is absolutely a crisis. And if you understand simple high school economics, uh, you, what you referenced there about the price of fentanyl, that tells you about the supply. If the price is going down, either the demand's going down or the supply is going up. And sadly, it's the, the fact that the supply is going up and it's because we have an unsecure Southern border. The Biden administration, as Senator Blackburn says, they have made every city in Tennessee a border uh, town, uh, every town a border town and every state a border state. Um, it is difficult because we uh, it's important that we be able to freely travel from state to state and not have government restrictions on that. But at the same time, that that allows for people that are in the country illegally to be able to get to anywhere in the country they want to get more or less. And so what we have to do in Tennessee is to demagnetize the state. That's a phrase that Phil Valentine used to use. We have to make it as un um, uh, hospitable, if that's a word, Unattractive, uh, for, yeah. for, for people to come to Tennessee. And that's, we can do things by using E-Verify and, and certainly for those that are trafficking um, drugs like fentanyl and others that are coming across the border with very, very stiff penalties. Yeah. California just gave all undocumented, um, I think 18 to 65 year olds, whatever free healthcare. So let them all go there let them be magnetized right. over there. And they, if they want to draw business. them and have them come, then let them do it. And governor Abbott's sending them there anyway. Chicago. Yeah. He should send them to California, but he's sending the show. What's the plan for all the gambling revenue we've collected? $69 million in sports betting tax revenue in 2022 compared to the 40.7 million collected in 21, 43.7 million in March driven mainly by March madness, basketball, gambling before NFL even started, generating more than $75 million of state tax revenue last year. Why do we need Fed Ed money with all that coming in? Well, you're right. And that's been our, our posture going back to many years ago when we passed the, the, the lottery and, and legalized the lottery, is that the proceeds from that would go towards education. And so, uh, but it's one of the great things about Tennessee. Yes, we are collecting a fair amount of revenue there in a particular silo that, that came from uh, the, the sports betting um, that, that was legalized in Tennessee. But just because we have some money sitting there doesn't mean we immediately have to find a way to spend it. There's nothing wrong with letting that money sit there and grow and let's be thoughtful and deliberative. Where a lot of states make a mistake, they have a program like that, it starts generating some money and then they just immediately go spend it and they count on that money coming in year after year and they get themselves in a jam. So it's still fairly new in Tennessee. So we can let it just kind of sit there and, and grow and we'll find a responsible and, and effective way, probably dealing with education uh, to, to spend that money. How about the lottery? Tennessee finally graded their public schools A to F and over half are C and below. We spend about $12,000 per kid and those TCAP scores were really bad. I think it's two thirds kids can't read at grade level or get into UTK even. Do you think the lottery money is doing as intended and actually even helping schools in all these years? Well, the 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 lottery, the bulk of the the proceeds from the from the state lottery go to higher education scholarships through the Hope Scholarship Program. However, having said that, there is a provision in the constitutional amendment we passed relative to either pre-K or capital funding for K-12 ed education. But that's why it's so important that all the things we've been doing in recent years in terms of third grade literacy intervention, um, uh, uh, accountability measures, this grading system that we put into place, I think is, is incredibly important. And also school choice and, and all of these things coming in together, you know, education, it's, it's a, it's a big, um, uh, bureaucracy. It's, it's, there's a lot of moving pieces and parts. We've got roughly a million kids in, in public schools in Tennessee and, mm -hmm. and getting that inertia shifted takes a lot of effort, but we're doing that in Tennessee and we are starting to see uh, improvements. And Steve, I did notice the time I've got to get to my, to my next event, but always enjoy being on with you. Grateful for the invitation. And I hope you'll have me back. Thank you very much. Happy new year. Thanks for your time and uh, good luck with that meeting. Great. Thanks. See you later. My name is Adelia Kirchner with the Tennessee Conservative, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View Tennessee podcast. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee 
People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Welcome to Stephen C. segment of our show. Producer Steve, what did you think of our guest, Jack Johnson? Uh, it's, it's refreshing to hear some good news and that he is uh, aware that um, he, he talked about the issues. Everything you mentioned pretty much he covered. He uh, played ball with you. You asked some hard questions and he came back and he admitted that, hey, we could do a better job here. But I am very um, <laughs> I'm envious Oh my gosh, Washington State! Oh, that we have State a senator is... like that. Yeah, the supermajority Republican Party. It's almost hard to even challenge him because it's like, hey, just keep doing wow. what you're doing. Just here's a little love, you know, whatever. Last time he was on, I got a lot of negative feedback. Let's say for going a little soft on him, but this show is not really crossfire. I'm not trying to get him into <laughs> debate or catch him in a lie or create controversy. I just want to know what we can expect from him. And if he lies, which I don't think he did, but if he did, we'll catch it because it's on tape and we can go back and say, hey, wait a second. But for the most part, you know, I think he's just a level-headed guy. You know, these congressmen and senators in Tennessee, they only work April until, no, January to April, four months, eight months out of the year, they're doing their own thing and they still have day jobs. Some of them come from really far away just to do this. And so, you know, got to cut on some slack. It's not like Washington where they're, 365 24 7 this is it they graduated community college or evergreen went right into the capital in olympia and started making a mess of things because they don't know how to you know meet a payroll it's yeah. a lot different so anyway i was happy to have them so yeah. speaking of that stunning testimony from author and former california gubernatorial candidate michael schellenberger before a congressional committee appears to show an illegal psyop was created by former president barack obama Huh? to interfere in future elections. Some of those plans took hold during the 2020 election cycle, Schellenberger testified. During his testimony about the Twitter files, Schellenberger said the following, Two days ago, my colleagues and I published the first batch of internal files from the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, CTIL, which shows U.S. and U.K. military contractors working in 2019 and 2020 to censor and turn sophisticated psychological operations and disinformation tactics developed abroad against the American people. Oh, yes. Huh. Quote, many insist that all that we identified in the Twitter files, the Facebook files, and the CTI files were legal activities by social media platforms to take down content that violated the terms of service. Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, and other big tech companies are privately owned, people point out, and free to censor content. And government officials are free to point out wrong information, they argue. But the First Amendment prohibits the government from abridging freedom of speech. That's true. The Supreme Court has ruled that the government may not induce, encourage, or promote private persons to accomplish what is constitutionally forbidden to accomplish. And there's not a large body of evidence providing that the government did precisely that. What's more, the whistleblower who developed, delivered the CTIO files to us says that its leader, a quote, unquote, former British intelligence analyst was, quote, unquote, in the room at the White House of Obama in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter disinformation project to, quote, stop a repeat of 2016. Ooh. That year, 2016, was the year that Donald Trump quite unexpectedly beat Hillary Clinton in the race for the White House. The report by Schellenberger, Gattentag, and Taibbi, former Rolling Stone contributor, exposes yet another terrifying chapter in America's undemocratic separation from the Constitution. As one of CTIL's main figures privately admitted, the techniques employed by the censorship industrial complex are those honed in wars and espionage overseas 
to say that the war against the First Amendment is hypothetical or exaggerated negates the importance that America's founding fathers placed on its lodestone of constitutional law. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot I remember of, Executive yeah. Order 13603 of March 16, 2012, National Defense Resource Preparedness. Let me read this real quick and then I'll let, hear what you have to say. By the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including the Defense Production Act of 1950, and as commander-in-chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, it is hereby ordered as follows. Part 1, Section 103. D. The Secretary of Commerce, in cooperation with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and other agencies, shall, one, analyze potential effects of national emergencies on actual production capability, taking into account the entire production system, including shortages of resources, and develop recommended preparedness measures to strengthen capabilities for production increases in national emergencies. Signed, Barack Hussein Obama, the White House, March 16, 2012. Did you really think they wouldn't put that to good use? What say you? Uh, I was going to say the COVID was a perfect storm for them to put in the Emergency Use Act. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose and all of our laws were pretty much overridden. And uh, that goes back to the Patriot Act. You you, you do know that. That's the the, the grandfather of our losing our... But actually, it even goes back further than that. I think Clinton passed some certain legislation. His administration, he passed... Um, Steve, this goes back way. They've been chiseling away our Constitution for decades, and we've seen. Well, how's America doing? The latest numbers measured the estimated population of each state as of July 1st, 2023. One, the three largest metropolitan areas had the largest population losses in percentages and absolute numbers. California's population declined by 573,000. All figures rounded off for clarity. Illinois by 264,000. New York's by 631,000. In percentage terms, the tiny District of Columbia and isolated Hawaii rivaled these losses. The South accounted for almost all the nation's population's gains. The South shall rise again and more. The Southern states, which I defined as the 11 Confederate states plus West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, gained 3,822,000 people in the 39 COVID and post-COVID months. That's more than the nation's population gain, thanks to the losses in New York, California, and Illinois. The southern states' lower taxes, lighter regulation, and lesser imposition of woke policies have helped it attract internal migrants and encourage family formation. Texas had the largest population gain in 2020 through 23, 1,357,800, but Florida was not far behind, 1,073,000. And the South Atlantic states from Florida north to Virginia accounted for most of the South's gain, 2,123,000, of the nation's total. Mid-20th century demographers saw the New York-centered metropolis as the focus of dynamic national growth. Now it's Interstate 95 south of Richmond. The Pacific Rim is shrinking where you live. Just as startling as the South's gigantic share of the nation's population gain is the fact of absolute population shrinkage of the Pacific states. California, which gained population every year since the gold rush of 1849, has lost 573,000 people in the 39 months since April 2020. Hawaii and Oregon have lost people too. Alaska has gained only 32 people, not percent, while Washington has gained just 108,000. Minus one, me. Watchdog names Office of Congressional Ethics as top ethics violator of 2023 by Brady Knox, breaking news reporter, December 29, 2029. Happy New Year, federal government. This from the Washington Examiner. A government watchdog has named the Office of Congressional Ethics its top ethics violator of 2023. The Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust, which is right-leaning, identified the repeated failure of the OCE to act on violations of ethics rules, particularly the usage of government resources for political campaigns, as the reason for the award, the Office of Congressional Ethics has failed in its duty to hold members of Congress accountable. Fact Executive Director Kendra Arnold said it's complete inact- inaction in numerous cases of members abusing official taxpayer-funded resources for political purposes function as an endorsement of violating basic ethics rules, and it's simply not too much to ask for enforcement when violations appear in places as such as the social media platforms, the OCE's continued failure to act will only result in further erosion of public trust in Congress and those bodies intended to hold them accountable. You think? Fact filed complaints against 10 different members of Congress over violations of the rules, including Rep. Elon Omar, 
Democrat Minnesota, Eric Swalwell, Dem California, and Cori Bush, Dem Missouri. <laughs> the runner-ups for the biggest ethics violations award were Senator Raphael Warnock, Democrat Georgia, Rep Gwen Moore, Democrat Wisconsin. Do you see a pattern here? Rep Jamal Bowman, Democrat New York, and political consultants firm La Machine. Fact, other notable ethics violations committed by Senator Warnock, Rep. Moore, Rep. Bowman, and La Machine involve illegal payments to politicians, disrupting the democratic process, and foreign nationals influencing our politics, all among the more serious violations. Arnold added, in 2024, we look forward to the relevant ethics bodies moving quickly to investigate these cases and apply any applicable penalties. Yeah, sure. And an update. Let's let CNN explain it. CNN reporter Matt Egan on the Harvard plagiarism scandal. Clip one, please. Plagiarism allegations uh, where Claudine Gay has had to issue corrections, um, multiple corrections. Now, we should note that um, Claudine Gay has not been accused of stealing anyone's ideas in any of her writings. Uh, mm. She's been accused of sort of a, more like a copying uh, other people's writings without attribution. So it's been more sloppy attribution than stealing anyone's ideas. But nonetheless, you, you put all of that together. The <laughs> this guy is apparently a journalist. Stealing other people's ideas is plagiarism. Here is Claudine Gay herself, the former president of Harvard, but still earning $900,000 a year as a professor's resignation letter, probably plagiarized too. See if you can glean an apology or figure out who's to blame from her. Hint, it's not her, of course. It is a singular honor to be a member of this university, which has been my home and my inspiration for most of my professional career. My deep sense of connection to Harvard and its people have made it all the more painful to witness the tensions and divisions that have riven our community in recent months, weakening the bonds of trust and reciprocity that should be our source of strength and support in times of crisis. Amidst all of this, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. Hey, my name is John Dunn from the All Ball Call-In Show in Fox Sports. You're listening to the Mill Creek View Tennessee Podcast. Hey, my name is Amy Souza. I am a women's rights activist uh, and workshop leader, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View Podcast. Last ones of the week. Time for my quotes of the day, but before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify and subscribe. Until they deplatform me, I'm on at Mill Creek View on Twitter. C.S. Lewis summed it up this way. All the things that ever deeply possessed our soul have been but hints of heaven, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. If I find in myself a desire which no one experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Jack Johnson. Let's hope you keep your Tennessee as Tennessee as you say you like Tennessee and as it was when I and you found it. Goodbye for now. I'm your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Trio is a collection album made by the voices of Dolly, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt and works so well together. I think it's a true shame we never got to hear a studio version of this one, but the live performance will do fine. See y'all next week. I've got more good ones scheduled for you. Peace in our time and glory to God and take it away, Dolly and Trio. Very mean, beneath the willow.
laughter of the children and the pumpkins at the county fair. They were looking for America behind every turn, flying the very colors that so many love to burn. I'll cruise the countryside. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.